This is The Scoop, a podcast run by student journalists offering teenagers perspectives on the latest happenings. We hope to provide authentic conversations that allow a quick listen wherever you are. States of America has a new president. On January 20th, the world watched as President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris swore in taking their oaths to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. It has been less than a month since the Biden-Harris administration took office, and in that time, Biden has already signed dozens of executive actions, including COVID-19 relief, immigration, climate change, and the economy. While the new administration is full steam ahead, implementing a series of actions to roll back former President Donald Trump's policies, the Republican Party is fracturing. For months, Donald Trump has attempted to overturn the election results, making false claims of widespread voter fraud and pursuing these baseless claims through lawsuits, recounts, and more. After the Trump-incited insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, several GOP officials resigned and reportedly former members of the Reagan and Bush administration are working to form a third party. Despite the attempt to build a Republican faction with center-right beliefs, Trump's acquittal from his second impeachment trial opens the door for his return to the political sphere. Today we have a full house in the virtual recording studio with three students, Chidima Niwafor, Kaya Jefferson, Claire Heschler, and U.S. history teacher Kathleen Niles. As always, I'm your host, London Sinclair. It's so great to have all four of you on the podcast today. If you could just briefly introduce yourselves, that would be amazing. Hi, everyone. My name is Shadima. I'm a junior. Hey, y'all. I'm Kaya. I'm a senior. Hello. Um, I'm Claire, and I'm a senior like Kaya. Hi there, I'm Ms. Niles, and I teach 11th grade U.S. history. I'm just going to dive in. What were some of your immediate thoughts when you learned of the coup at the Capitol on January 6th? <laughs> For me, I can definitely say that I was shocked, and I just, like, walked out to, like, go get some food or something. Um, and I actually, my dad was the one who told me about it. He was like, oh, come look at this real quick, because he had CNN on. And I was just shocked at what I was seeing. And I couldn't really like, in the moment, it didn't hit me. There's an insurrection at the Capitol. Like people are trying to enter the Capitol with violence, with the intent to cause harm. In the moment, it didn't hit me like that. My first immediate thought was, this is something else that Trump incited. And I was disappointed, shocked, and surprised that it had even gotten that far within a matter of hours. Yeah, I think I had a very similar reaction. I mean, like the middle of a school day, I had just walked in the living room and my dad and my mom were like freaking out what is happening right now. Instantly, I kind of felt like this sense of anger because I remember the same feeling of like getting called into the living room to see something on the news last summer or last end of last school year. But it was like the very opposite thing where like instead of white people just getting being able to do whatever they want, it was like people who looked like me getting murdered. So I just felt like instant anger, like these people are attacking a Capitol building where, you know, public officials work and this is a very dangerous situation. 
Whereas if it was a black person, the situation would be very different. For me, like my immediate response was somewhere in between feeling like there had just been so much tension, especially in the way that I know I've seen a lot of Trump supporters online, like claiming everything about the election to be fraudulent and just seeming really disconnected from the reality that like I live in. And so there was a feeling that something was going to happen, but obviously not to this extent. I think a lot of people overlooked because it was like, oh, well, it's Trump people and they're attacking Democrats and democracy, which felt like a bit of an understatement. Claire, that that resonated with me when you said um, that you like you were sort of watching for something and anticipating something. I think I think I felt that too before uh, before it happened. That there's sort of this like anticipation that you know we should we should watch something's going to happen. Um, you know, obviously didn't anticipate exactly what form it would take. It takes a while for me to process what I think about it because it's, you know, once something like that happens, I first think like, well, what, you know, how are we going to do this in class? Like, what are we, you know, what's the, what should the lesson plan look like? Are we, you know, are we going to stop everything? Is this something that uh, needs emotional processing? Are we going to have it in history class or in advisory or whatever? So uh, this, like many things, it took a good uh, week or two for me to start sort of thinking about it um, on a personal level as a part, as opposed to like in my role as a teacher. You bring up a great point about processing time. Now that the four of you have had that time to speak in some of your classes, meet with friends, family, let the dust settle a bit more, how have your opinions changed or developed in the last month? It's it's almost as if like I was surprised and also I kind of expected it. Um, just cause like, this is the reality of our country. It has been for a long, long time, um, that black people, people of color are treated extremely worse, um, especially by law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Um, so I guess it was just like, you, you know, a feeling of disappointment in like that our country has had such little progress and also anger, just because it's completely ridiculous that law enforcement wouldn't act like as fast as they would if someone was having a peaceful BLM protest. To echo Kaya, I was also disappointed, to say the least, because I feel like right before it happened, Trump had like given a speech. And the entire time, it was very clear that he was encouraging this, inciting this. He wanted it to happen. There was a point in time where he said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'll be behind you when you do this. You know, like I have your back. And I feel like all of those messages, all of those little hints was him telling the world, like, you should prepare because I'm not going down without a fight. But when it did happen, the police just did not show up. They didn't immediately act. I think that was a collective effort because this was not an overnight or a couple of hours. This had been planned for a while. And I feel like the police at the time should have been prepared, but they kind of just wrote it up as another Trump rally. And that was their biggest. Kai, I'm happy you brought that up because many were quick to acknowledge that if these people were Black Lives Matter activists, they would have been treated differently. 
and we saw a number of BLM protests throughout America in DC, Philadelphia, Portland, and there was a great contrast in treatment. From what I understand, uh, the local police in DC had assumed that the demonstration wouldn't become an insurrection, it wouldn't become something so violent. Um, so what is your reaction to this difference in treatment on display at the Capitol? Claire said something earlier about the complexity of it, and Kaya also talked about the, the white supremacy component of it and the, the sense that white people are were allowed in the first place to do something different than people of color might have been able to do. I think time and investigation has uh, has been revealing the layers around this thing. I mean, you know, another layer is that I think there's kind of a, a sort of a generalized media story of the, the Trump movement as being kind of a white working class movement. I think another layer of this have, has been uh, that this, you know, that it wasn't a working class phenomenon, you know, there are lawyers there and real estate agents, you know, it's very much um, crosses class lines and things like that. So I think the more um, investigation and the more stories there have been about it, the more I have learned about the kind of, you know, the onion equality to it, right? Yeah, I think realizing how many people like couldn't really deny that white people are treated so much differently and have so much more privilege than black people and people of color in general. I was kind of just sitting watching it with my family and watching the news coverage. I know my parents, I think, more surprised by it than I was because a lot of Democrats can have this like false sense of incredible progress. And I think that while some progress has been made for sure, it's just not anywhere where it needs to be. And I think that what comes with a lot of like liberalism and girl boss and like representative culture is that it just gives an illusion of everything being okay. And when you're actually part of movements on the ground or you're more left, then you can't really close your eyes to those things. And so I think that a lot of Democrats especially were a lot more surprised by it because it was just so blatant. Like black people can't exist without getting flagged down by police or experiencing police brutality. And white people are allowed to storm the Capitol and have weapons and, you know, have violent intent and they get off scot-free. It was a more clear representation for some of the people that weren't, you know, looking into things before that as much like Kaya said, has been going on for so long since the founding of our country. And the people who were really, you know, in on it and doing research and things, I think that they were, they were less shocked. Yeah, I would uh, agree with all three of you in terms of the importance of seeing white supremacy as, as a critical ingredient of the story, and, and particularly at the stages of anticipation, right? Like when you're planning for how to allocate police resources, it's hard to look at this and and not see a role either for implicit bias or overt interpersonal racism in terms of you know thinking like well this group is not going to be violent and this group is i think the context in washington dc is is also really unique and i'm not uh I'm not quite sure how all of this interplayed, but I mean, there there were two or three different law enforcement agencies involved in this, right? Because there's DC police, then the, uh, the Capitol has its own police. And then, 
you know, DC police has some jurisdiction, but of course, like the, the federal government also has some jurisdiction. And there was some question about, you know, the process of calling out additional troops when it got out of hand, right? And that's like, DC doesn't have the authority to do that. It would have to be, you know, members of the federal government. And that part, I, I haven't been following that angle of the story very closely, but I think that's, that's a, and just that, that complexity of DC's status as like not quite uh, an independent, you know, not a state, like not quite an independent entity. You know, I wonder what layers that adds to it. And I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, Claire mentioned false progress and Kaya commented on the reality of our nation. And I think something that was very common was this idea of this is not America. That was, you know, Joe Biden's initial response and many other officials repeated this rhetoric. And uh, we've been talking a lot about Ibram X. Kendi in my history class, and he recently wrote an article in The Atlantic claiming that America has a history of, you know, rejecting the realities of our past and our present, and he states that the heartbeat of America is denial. Do any of you resonate with this belief or care to elaborate on that idea? I definitely agree um, with Kennedy's point. I think a lot of times there's this one, especially from well, not especially from, but I do think it comes a lot from the left that like America like isn't racism, like it's about unity and, you know, freedom, liberty, all these ideals. But a lot of times they reject that America is extremely um, racist and they have a long history of systemic racism, systemic issues. And those are inherently American because they've been here since the founding, since the Constitution and I think that when we ignore that as an American issue, that's when it becomes like people see it as, you know, a black issue. Like this is an issue for black people to fight on their own, where it should be an everyone issue. I mean, racism is an American thing, very American. And that kind of separation is kind of hard to create change when people don't see it as their problem, too. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Kaya, and also with Kendi's point. And I think that there's so many different points on the spectrum of denial. Like you have people who are more conservative who think that racism was somehow ended when slavery was abolished. And that has no logical sense to it, but a lot of people still believe that. And then you have more moderate people who might think that it was ended like in the civil rights era with the Civil Rights Act. And then some people even on the left think that it's kind of an issue, but like, you know, because Black Lives Matter exists that it's over. And I just think that there is so much denial and there's so many like different magnitudes of it. Kaya said, wanting America to be perfect is a very American thing. A lot of people take criticism of America as an attack on it or that it's the worst country in the world. And I think that that's just not productive because even if you liked your country generally, that doesn't mean it can't be better. I just don't understand that philosophy of like, if something's not terrible, it's untouchable, especially when it comes to the response to the riot and the response to a lot of the racism and police brutality that a lot more people have opened their eyes to. Democrats especially, they're like, okay, we need to fix this. And then it's done as if it's not like ingrained into America and that it's something that is like an easy fix. Like we can give them sensitivity training and then everything's good again, which I think is just a reductive view of it generally accepting America's racist past, present, and, you know, the projected future until we get enough change is really important. 
Yeah, um, I fully agree with Kai and Claire. Um, I think that Trump's era as a whole has also like heightened the denial in America. Maybe not on the left. Maybe some people on the left have like realized like, oh, it is worse than I thought. There is still so much more to be done. But I feel like Trump supporters believe that, well, our economy has gotten so good. So I don't understand why so many people are still angry. Or this, this, and this is good about Trump. So I really don't see why you are still so concerned about this one thing. And I feel like when people try and use one good thing to justify all the bad things that have been done, that is one of the reasons why America is still in denial as a whole. And I actually do believe that the Capitol Hill insurrection has kind of opened America's eyes even more. Like, yes, over summer, Black people were fighting for the right to live. We still have to go through that to this day. It is not over. This is our life. This is what we have to deal with on a daily basis. And now people are starting to realize it. Now people are like, oh, I didn't know you had to live like this. Or, oh, I'm really so sorry that this is what you've been fighting for. And I was just blind. And I just didn't realize that this is still a normal thing in your life. And I feel like with these terrible incidents that have been happening, whether it is another Black man being gunned down on the street or a bunch of white people trying to enter the Capitol to cause harm, slowly but surely this is opening up America's eyes and showing them just how bad things are right now. Like, yes, progress has been made, but it is not enough and we have to keep going. So I do agree with Andy's statement. Yeah, I think also a lot of people or a lot of politicians just kind of slap a Band-Aid over these systemic issues because they've realized that, especially the younger generation, like we see these issues as some of the most pressing things right now. And so for their image, it looks good if they're, you know, like, oh, I'm doing a land acknowledgement before my speech or... um you know, I'm I'm taking money away from the police department. I'm just thinking about L.A. County because I know Eric Garcetti has done these things. But it, to me, it's very much like a kind of temporary solution to an issue that's going to require systemic changes and a lot of reform. So that's just something that I see is a trend also happening right now. Gosh, there's a lot to chew on, you you three. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking back, Kaya, I think that's a whole, I mean, that, that's a giant and uh, important topic, right? What, like, what does it look like to tackle the systemic nature of it, right? Like, I mean, pulling back to, oh, and, and I just want to say as well, Kaya, that what you said earlier about this, this American history belonging to all of us, right? You know, not that it, that it this isn't like Black history that only matters to Black people or an event that's only pertinent to Black people, right? That that really resonates with me. So a ho, as they would say in council. Um, I think as far as Kendi's, uh, what, the denial is the heartbeat of America. I When I saw that headline before I read the piece, when I read his piece in The Atlantic, uh, to me at the, at the end of it really was, well, to crib his own phrase, like the end of it seemed like the heartbeat of the piece. So it seemed to me that his his point was not so much, I mean, it, it was important to emphasize the role of and the importance of, you know, not embracing our history and not understanding our history of injustice. That was an important part. But 
the second part of it at the end, he talks about why that's important, right? And the idea was to say, rather than saying, this is not who we are, it's to say, yes, this is what we have done. These injustices are, are part of our story, and we will do better. And we will confront and reckon with this and, tr and try to find a way forward while embracing this, the part of us that is injustice. And, and I think that is the rich part of it to me, because I, I think that there's another side of it, too, to, you know, when a politician says, this is not who we are, that can be a statement of denial. It can also be a statement of aspiration. Uh, this is not who I want us to be. Uh, this is not how I want to see the country, and I want us to be something different. And I think Kendi's, his, his article, again, at the end is talking about that part of it, right? Like, this is this isn't who we would like to be as a people. And that I think is, is an important part of it too, because we are a, a country of injustice and we are a country of justice and we are a country of atrocity and we are a country of fellowship and we are a country of anti-democracy and we are a country of democracy. We're, we're all of those things. And I, I think it's important to embrace all of it in order to find that way forward, find that path forward, whatever it may be. Miss Niles, I'm glad that you reintroduced uh, that topic that Kaya brought up because I think that particularly connects with the fact that this was a attack on democracy, a you know a key pillar of our nation, the foundation, and in theory that should be a bipartisan issue. And you actually prompted this question in an earlier meeting, but I think it's a great to bring it up again. And that is, what does the future of democracy look like in a divided country? And so I pose that again to all four of you now. And I just want to say I'm so happy to, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what the three of you have to say about this. I'm really excited. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> pressure in terms of my interest. I'm so, I just want to hear what you have to, what you're thinking. Yikes. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I was just, I'm an APGO and we we're talking about gerrymandering. It just reminded me that a lot of the issues with democracy and these really polarizing or the polarizing times that we're in now are, are honestly, it's the fault of both parties. I don't think that I would put blame on either one in particular because politicians are abusing their power and creating issues between the two parties that shouldn't be there especially in cases where like we need something to happen like with a covid relief bill there's people who are losing their homes and their jobs they need something to happen but because of the polarizing tensions between the parties right now i think that a lot of those things are kind of getting ignored and i think that that's been happening throughout Trump's presidency and he's incited a lot of it through his rhetoric and the way he talks about the Democratic Party is kind of very demonizing. Something that um, I keep bringing up my parents, something that my dad kept laughing, I guess, about in like a, not in a funny way, but just like ironic is that we would watch the news and then it would be like Trump supporters are claiming that counting the votes is anti-democracy, which is what democracy is, is like counting the votes. So I think that it is, like Kai said, it's hard to like strive to get back to democracy when democracy itself is kind of being redefined by a certain political affiliated group. 
And so it's it's hard because they see democracy as any occasion in which Trump wins, even if it is by cheating. And they see Biden in office and as, you know, anti-democracy. And and I like I'm not in right wing channels, so I don't really know their like reasoning behind anything. Um, so I don't want to speak for them. And I think it's hard because it's hard to want to interact with people, especially people that are really hateful towards people that are different from them, um, people that affiliate themselves with white supremacy and where white supremacy isn't a breaking point for them. And I think that it is the job of the more privileged groups, like white people especially, and also like cisgender and heterosexual people to educate more of the right. I think that, I mean, obviously this is coming from me, so other people might not agree like on the right about like what education should be. But personally, I believe that morals and quality are things that are taught and that there needs to be more effective teaching in certain places. And I don't think that that necessarily needs to be put upon minorities. You know, it's not really their job and I don't want it to be anyone's duty to interact with someone that's hateful towards them. But I do think that really the only way to get to a more democratic and, you know, for me, like equal and equitable country is through education. Unfortunately, I think that right now we are a divided country. Like if you were to ask the question, what does a divided country look like? I feel like all you need to do is really turn on the news and go to two different stations, one that might be more democratic, more left-leaning, and one that might be more right-leaning, and you'll see just how different those two views are. In terms of democracy, I feel like if I were to define what democracy looks like in a divided nation, I would honestly just say that it really isn't democracy. Instead of the belief being power to the people, the belief is now power to the people as long as it's my people like if you're going to say power to the people like that's fine but as long as it refers to the right or as long as it refers to the left and I feel like if we ever wanted to go back to a place where we are equal then we would have to kind of erase or scratch or move past the Trump era because I feel like this his era is one of the reasons that we are such a divided nation He brought beliefs that have already been there for a long time, but they just came to light in a more prominent way. And for that reason, our nation split down the middle and it was either you agree with Trump or you disagree with Trump. I feel like we moved away from being Republicans and Democrats and instead it was Trump supporters or non-Trump supporters. Because even there are Republicans who don't support Trump. And in that case, And all of this goes back to the idea of we're a divided nation because of the Trump era. And if we ever wanted to go back to being a united nation, then we would have to move past that era. We'd have to start implementing policies that favor both sides, in a sense, policies that are for Black people, policies that support Black lives, policies that are against police brutality, and that's all for the left. And obviously, I don't know what policies the right would want to implement, but there has to be some sort of middle ground if we ever wanted to go back to being a United Nation. You bring up an interesting point, Shadima, and what you said about party lines made me think of a lot of criticism or some people's criticism of only having two parties. And when elections come around, especially presidential elections, I think the general public is kind of forced to choose between 
either candidate and you know on both sides they could be a bad person like you may not like them but you're kind of forced to choose do I want to support a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate regardless of if I don't like either of them I'm not necessarily sure how to go about the two-party system or adding another party but it's just something interesting to think about kind of eradicating what we've known as a two-party system for a while now. That's so interesting. You guys are going in really interesting places. I mean, I think one of the things that that I'm pulling from what you all have said is, is how democracy lives in so many different places. You know, democracy lives in institutions like political parties, but dem- democracy also lives in sort of a body politic in how we see ourselves as Americans and in how we see our uh, political, I don't know what the word is to use. I mean, I think, Shadima, you were describing it in a way that that made me think of the word tribalism, right? That we have these like political tribes. And I think the thing that I don't know what to do with in terms of the tribalism is that I, I definitely have the sense that we are talking past one another as a country. I definitely have the sense that, that you know, that there are ways in which Democrats talk about what they want and Republicans talk about they want what they want or liberals and conservatives. And it's, it's it's like a different language, talking past one another. Like how, I, I don't, I don't know the way forward. How do we speak across a divide that seems so deep? This inability to understand one another, and that's where I just don't, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I kind of agree with like everyone here. I definitely agree with Kaya that for me, the bipartisan system is really troubling because especially on the left, there's a lot of settling and what can happen with trends of certain parties being more conservative or like, let's say there's like a conservative candidate like Trump, who's, you know, more extreme, it just shifts the entire country and all the candidates more to the right. You know, a lot of people had to give up concessions and especially people on the left had to make themselves appear less extreme. And I think for me, that was part of, if not the reason why Biden won the candidacy, because a lot of people were kind of rationalizing that, okay, well, Bernie's too extreme and we have to like work with Republicans who don't like Trump. And so I think that it can undo what feels like progress to people on the left. I don't know, for me, it's just (laughs) weird that like one person is meant to unite like a country that is so divided and that like, people aren't allowed to have different views. So for me, it's also just like having things be more local um, could really help places like California to move further left if it was like in the hands of just Californians instead of being mandated by like the Senate where like, you know, we get about as much, we get as much representation as like Wyoming or Vermont or like a bunch of smaller places. Well, and I would, I would jump in and just say, like, I think that that, does happen. You know, California does have state level policies that are further left than than some other states. Um, When the Trump administration, just as an example, was trying to roll back some of the auto standards, California using both its political will and also its its economic might in the auto industry kind of got a bunch of automakers to, to sign on to using the more stringent emission standards. And so in that way, even just as a state was kind of, you know, was able to push back even against the federal government. Um, I I do think that we have a tendency, and and, uh, I mean, this has been true as long as I've been conscious, (laughs) but uh, conscious of politics, that is, 
very much to emphasize national stuff, presidential stuff. I agree with you that I think when it comes to choosing a president, in this case, the, with the with the primaries, the Democrats you know, went with a more moderate candidate because that, there's sort of this idea that, that he was the one who would be most likely to defeat Trump. But I think one of the things that you'll see, like in the House of Representatives, part of the reason that that the House is such like a wonky institution is because, um, and partly this is a result of gerrymandering, but but you just have many more extremes because uh, it's it's individual districts who are electing their representatives, right? So if you have a community, a, you know, a region that is very very left leaning, that you know you will get a more left lean, you know, further left on the ideological spectrum or on the political spectrum. Same thing on the right. Um, so you know the Senate tends to be a more like moderate body because you have entire states electing senators, whereas. Uh, the House tends to have more extremes. Um, and there again, like that's that's part of why I, I don't see the problem as fundamentally just that we have two parties, because I think that in any government, um, you have, well, in any, democ- in any democratic government, you have to have negotiation somewhere along the line to pass the legislation. Um, and in our system, instead of that negotiation happening between, you know, five parties, in a power sharing agreement, it tends to happen within one party and then between the two parties. So I, I think the negotiation still happens. Um, but again, I like I, to me the, the the fundamental issue that's blocking stuff is the partisanship and the inability to communicate with and understand each other. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Scoop. If you want to continue listening to the following conversation. Please go to part two. Here we discuss the inauguration and fallacy calls for unity, Biden's first 100 days checklist, including the several executive orders already passed, and of course, Trump's parting words, we will be back in some form. If you liked the sound of this episode, subscribe to The Scoop Podcast. It's free. Starting this school year, we'll be chatting with you and giving the daily scoop on life at Archer. If you're new to all things podcasts and need more info on how to listen, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and the Oracle website, archeroracle.org. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong. See you next